All right, Chris, would you rather stand in line at Disney for two hours, no fast pass for one ride or record this podcast with Josh and me? I'm here for the podcast, man. I'm here for the people. Josh, do you believe him? Yeah, I'm going to take him at his word today. It's Tuesday. Chris doesn't lie on Tuesdays. <laughs> That's what Mondays are for. All right, guys, yeah. welcome to Knowles 24-7's On the Bench. This is Brendan Sinone, joined by Josh Newberg, Chris Nee. Guys, we have a lot to go over, considering that we always have a lot to go over. I, I just lie about it all the time. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But there's actually a fair amount of recruiting news to get to today. Before we do that, though, uh, there was an article. There was an article from Matt Hayes of Bleacher Report, basically summarizing the mess that Jimbo Fisher left FSU's program in. I thought some of the uh, some of it was rehashing stuff that's already been reported. It was just in a a neat package with some new voices. David Coburn, the athletic director, Willie Taggart, I thought was was pretty candid. It's something that a lot of people are talking about right now, and I think it's still noteworthy. I think we're almost at the point where we don't have to talk about Jimbo Fisher anymore. I thought a year ago when we did the uh, the What the Hell podcast series, that'd be the end of talking about Jimbo Fisher. But there's obviously still some relevancy. Josh, I'm going to kick it to you. Your thoughts on just general thoughts, and we'll go into it and break down some of the, I think, the more uh, revealing quotes and, and anecdotes in there in a bit. But what were your general thoughts on on having that article come out now, and, and what did you take away from it? I thought this was um, this was something that FSU doesn't do very often. Uh, this was a calculated PR move yeah. that, in my opinion, was executed perfectly. Um, I like the timing of it. I like the voices in it. I like the fact that FSU was willing to, and I don't mean this in a negative way, create their own negative or narrative or push their own narrative. Well, maybe a better way to say it is FSU was willing to tell their side of the story. Put it mm-hmm. down. Yeah, so that's fair. my question to you in a uh, in-depth long form like this, where you're interviewing the AD and the head coach, um, this isn't, do you, do you think that this was something that FSU approached Bleacher Report with, or do you think it was the other way around? I would imagine that Bleacher Report reached out to FSU and pitched this story idea. And and I think that's typically how that goes. I, I haven't experienced it in, in my career, Josh, like someone, I'll have someone from, from public relations or like a, like a coach. Uh, and this is even with recruiting stuff when I did that come and pitch you an idea for a story sometimes, but nothing as expansive as this, not a long form story where you're getting quotes from other you know, former coaches off record, multiple former coaches off record uh, that were on FSU staff when Jimbo Fisher was there. That, that to me is something that doesn't happen a ton. So my assumption, and this is without talking to Matt Hayes, is that, uh, is that he approached FSU. So this is what I was thinking. If you're FSU, you, you, it makes sense from a public relations standpoint. I'm totally with you, Josh. Like this is, a calculated decision, one that makes sense given where your program is right now. I know some fans, readers, questioning the timing of the article, some of the balance of the article. I think that's fair. Uh, but from FSU's standpoint, I, I, that's exactly what you want. It gives the fan base a little bit more time for Willie uh, to, yeah. to kind of buy into him. And I also think that um, this is just a direct ripoff of my article a couple weeks ago <laughs> where I – just randomly decided to place a percentage of blame on Jimbo Fisher and Willie Taggart. And weren't you I, asked about that on a different outlet? No, it started with the CBS video. Sometimes we got to do these like 90 uh, second hits and CBS wanted me to do something kind of corny on like, who's going to be a breakout player, something like that. And I said, well, how about I do a, a 90 second hit on, on the percentage of blame that I lay on Jimbo Fisher versus Willie Taggart for five and seven. So they were cool with it, and the soundbite came out, and then I made it into like a little bolt, a little article, um, and it, it generated some some discussion. But this took it a step further. Yeah, but it, it, but it, it essentially agreed with what I was saying was that I blame a majority of five and seven on Jimbo, except this article. Do you think it absolved Willie of all blame? There was. I think it came a little ahead, too Chris. close to that. I, I think I'm it came with, a little too Chris. close to that. I mean. I, you know, I jokingly said I was 72, 28 on the percentage thing. I felt like this article was more like 95 and five and, you know, Willie walked into a mess. None of us are going to deny that Jimbo left a mess. Jimbo left a culture of completely just 
it was, it was in disarray. It was guys that didn't want to work hard, guys that didn't want to go to class, guys that thought they were owed something that they didn't ever earn. And Willie's trying to change that. I wholeheartedly agree with Willie's points in the article about, you know, guys bitching and moaning, guys not going to class. All of that is certainly true. But the dysfunction in the locker room and stuff like that last year, that, that falls as much on Willie, I'm saying with the coaching staff, on Willie as anybody else. So, or truthfully, more so on Willie than anybody else. So I thought it was a little too uh, kind-hearted to Willie with regards to five and seven. Willie didn't lay the groundwork for five and seven. That was certainly laid by Jimbo Fisher, as shown by the season before. But he didn't do anything to kind of correct course quickly. He was late to the party on realizing how screwed up this whole thing was. Do you think... Yeah. Do you think Matt Hayes of Bleacher Report was, I don't want to say pressured, but do you think there was a, maybe an agreement that he was going to kind of write it that way if Coburn and Taggart were going to go on the record? Yeah, I'm sure there was. You do that sometimes. You play to the source. Yeah, I yeah. agree. We don't know that for sure. Like, I don't know if it's fairly to say. No, I'm just asking. But I'm sure the idea was pitched and say, this is what I'm going to write. This is what I'm thinking about writing it. And you give them the access because it fits something that you think could, could benefit your program. Yeah, yeah. And the reason I'm asking you guys this is because when you interview ADs and head coaches compared to the people that I interview, mostly recruiting or sources or whatever, um, there's more hoops that you have to jump through to get these guys on the record, right? Like you have to go through sports info or you have to have a direct relationship with these people. But I'm assuming Matt Hayes, who's not a local guy, probably went through sports info that that's what i'm i'm just trying to ask like what's the background how does a story like this get orchestrated he would have to have almost a hundred percent i can say the confidence go through sports info because he got james blackman cam Akers, unless mm-hmm. matt hayes who's a national writer somehow had you know access and content or uh, had, had access to get in contact with both of those guys he didn't cover recruiting like yeah it's not an easy step to take to go ahead and get get a college player uh, that would have to be through sports info, I would think. And then when you also get the athletic director involved, again, that, that to me, I would say almost 100% certainty that, that Florida State had to help set up the interview, which, again, is, is pre- you know, pretty common practice for a story like this. Yeah, Coburn's actually a very accessible guy. It's kind of a refreshing thing about him in the AD role is that he will, uh, you know, he'll at least talk to you off the record about a subject pretty well. And if you want to get them on record, you got to do some of the, you know, going through people that you have to go through proper channels or orchestrating it with him. But he's pretty good at being accessible and, you know, doing you right if you ask for some of his time. But he's very direct. Um, it's kind of a nice thing about him is that he's not going to, you know, take you on a long, winding conversation to make his point. Uh, so I, I don't want to belabor like the, the Willie Taggart. Jimbo Fisher conversation because we've had that Josh Josh has done articles on it. We've talked about it on the podcast. Maybe this is something that we were writing about back in September when we were trying to figure out like why the program is the way it is after the slow start, trying to assess blame. And and you can, I think you can paint the picture any way you want to. And, and you can say it's Willie's fault. You could say it's Jimbo's fault. You could say it's somewhere in between like you guys have. I think that's all fair. What I'm interested in is seeing what this article did reveal things that we did learn things that were either or maybe uh, confirmed for us. So I want to go over four points with you guys real quick and go from there because I do think there are a few things that were were revealing in my mind. All right, so here we go. Number one, this was a quote from David Coburn. Uh, He wouldn't dignify rumors of Willie Taggart's job security. He said that's basically paraphrasing here, saying that's not something that's even worth talking about. But he did say, quote, what is real is there absolutely were locker room issues. And now, too, you can see the academic issues. Willie had a lot to deal with beyond the field when he got this job, and he's been busy dealing with it. That's Taggart's biggest culture change. So I thought it was interesting for administration to come out and say, yeah, this was a mess. I think, again, this is something that we've heard off record. This is something that you can just look at logically and say that's you know, clear. <laughs> you look at the APR. like It doesn't take a genius to figure it out. Was that interesting? Chris, I'll throw this to you because I know you have dealt with Coburn more. Was that interesting to hear him go on record and say, yeah, this was a bit of a shit show for whoever was going to come in and coach, and this is what Willie Taggart's dealing with right now? 
Well, on the first topic of job security, he's not going to talk about that because it's not a topic of conversation. Willie would have to feel horrendously again this year for it to become even a topic of conversation. And I don't think it's a realistic point to the midway point of that contract, which is the end of not this season, but next season. Agreed. Now on to the point of him speaking publicly about academics and just a complete mess that he walked into. I think it's just positively reinforcing that. That's not hearsay or after the fact. It, it, it is what it is. It was 100% a messed up situation. It wasn't of Coburn's making. It wasn't of Willie Taggart's making. It was of the previous head coach who was basically allowed to do as he saw fit and had no repercussions coming from anybody above him. And, you know, I, I think it's fair that Taggart said it. It doesn't surprise me that he said it. It doesn't surprise me he said it on the record because it's true. He's very direct, and I think that's just kind of how he operates. And, He's not telling people anything that they couldn't either realize or has not already been said. And one of the other points, and Josh, I'll throw the next one to you here. Uh, one of the coaches, and again, there were a couple of coaches, I believe, at least two in the article that, that were on Jimbo Fisher's staff that spoke off record. Uh, and this kind of goes to the last point, but, but this coach said that this was one of the goals or the goal for the final couple of years under Jimbo Fisher. And that was, quote unquote, keep the players eligible. So this wasn't about getting guys to, to graduate. This wasn't about setting them up for long-term success. It was just about treading water and just being able to get through. Uh, this is what this coach said. Again, I think the APR uh, indicates that. Josh, did you find that aspect interesting that a former coach, and you speak to a lot of college coaches, was able to go on – well, not, he was on background, uh, but, but lent some voice and credence to, again, things that we've seen the last few years. Yeah, I think what do you, uh, coaches are always trying to keep these kids eligible. Um, but right, but that was like the like the goal. It wasn't to go extend beyond being eligible. It wasn't to graduate them. It wasn't to have a flourishing like Clemson's APR is stellar and guys are succeeding there. Uh, this was seemed to me. I guess what I found interesting, Josh, was that there there was a bare minimum uh, effort to to keep guys eligible, and that was that was it based on that quote. Shit before the. Uh... 2013 national championship game literally in january right before the game jeremy pruitt and charles kelly were tutoring telvin smith and matthew thomas or or i can't remember the other linebacker but telvin smith was one of them like literally in their offices tutoring them before a test so that they would be eligible to play in the national championship (laughs) (laughs) i could only imagine that scene of them going over like biology jeremy pruitt teaching biology to telvin smith 72 hours before the uh, national championship game. But uh, yeah, man, this is big time college football. It's a look behind the scenes. This is kind of what it is at every program. I think that FSU let it go a little bit further with accountability. So therefore at the very end, they were just hanging on and trying to keep these kids eligible. Um, the debt was going to get paid when you start cutting corners. It's inevitable that eventually it, the debt is going to come due. You haven't, you haven't watched Game out. of Thrones. You haven't Jimbo watched Game got of out before, before, you know, before it all exploded. What can we say? That was, it was a shrewd move on his part, but he maximized his time here. He utilized all the resources and kind of left FSU in a situation where they need to cultivate that all again and, and get it going. So he was a damn strip miner. He yeah. uh, came in, he won national title, and then he took the spare parts and sold them for pennies on the dollar and he left it just completely this yeah completely uh what you call it discombobulated annihilated. and then it's perfectly yeah. acceptable to understand what willie taggart inherited the things that he did right the things that he did wrong why they went five you know you can there's nuance to this and i think every time an article comes out stating something bad about willie People assume that it's 100% Willie's fault when an article comes out and says some of the things that happen under Jimbo's watch. People think that you're only blaming Jimbo. But like we talked about three weeks ago on this podcast, we all feel that there's a percentage of blame, if you have to, a lot it, that there's a percentage of blame that can go around to both coaches. And that and it's perfectly fine for that to, to be explained. Makes Chris, sense. Chris, are you at all surprised that Josh thinks a uh, an in-depth, long-form story was based off of a podcast that he did three weeks ago? I, I don't have enough sleep in me to get into that subject, Sinone. 
All right. Anyways, this is kind of going off of what was Josh Josh was talking okay. about, and this is <laughs> uh, this is point number three that I wanted to go into in the article. Yeah. Uh, Tagger was asked how bad uh, did it get last season internally. And that's something that we talked about. I think well, we've talked about this a lot, but but like after the Florida game, I remember writing a column, and and I was told like that that locker room was inconsolable. There was finger pointing to the nth degree. It was a cluster, <laughs> and I want to get. Well, I want to get Chris's thoughts on this first because of the fourth point it goes very close to his stuff that Josh has reported before. But for, so for this point, Chris, pay attention here. I'm reading this to you, big boy. All right, you ready? I'm here. Willie Taggart, when asked how how bad did it get last season, he said, "Bad man, just that bitching and moaning and anything yeah, because everything yeah, wasn't what." It, yeah, well, but the audience may not have heard. <laughs> Jesus Christ, the audience may not have heard it. So just just play along with me. All right, because everything wasn't what it was before. Why we got to do this? Why we got to do that? There's none of that now. And we tried to put them in the situations this spring where they could have easily said that. We ran the shit out of them and no one said anything. One dude, like Willie Taggart's like swearing on record now. I like it. Like, good. We, we need some more B's and S's in this world. All right, Chris, what were your it's thoughts on turn. Yes, it is. He's going, he's Willie, going, he's going full Triple H. He's going full yeah. Triple H on everyone. <clears throat> I just didn't I mean, suck it. I mean, thing. Players were entire, entirely enabled under Jimbo in every which way. When it came to training, they were enabled. When it came to academics, they were enabled. When it came to dealing with media, they were enabled. If they didn't want to do it, they didn't do it. And you know what? When somebody comes in and says, we're doing it different, a lot of people are going to be like, screw you. I'm not doing it different. That's what the hell is going on. The issue is that a certain individual who kind of personified that was given the keys as the quarterback of the damn team doesn't really set the tone of no more bitching and moaning. So, uh, you know, hey, Jimbo created the problem, but Willie took his sweet-ass time trying to resolve it, and here we are, what, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 months into his tenure? Well, yeah, cool. Start trying to fix it. You know, and you're trying to create a better culture. Yeah, you are. You're getting better people. You're getting better character. You're getting better students, guys that will go to class. It's also about getting better talent, and it's about getting good talent. And I don't know that FSC is becoming a better football team as they're becoming better people. And that's the new predicament. And some of that is obviously because Jimbo left a very screwed-up situation, but it's now on Willie and the administration that he works for to fix that. And we can write articles like this to her blue in the face and make excuses and state that Jimbo Fisher was an asshole who screwed it all up. But you know what? At the end of the day, Nobody cares. You got to win games. That's right. what football is about. That's what college football is about. You, you can make excuses till you are blue in the face. Does not matter. It's right. about making it right. And you can say culture will improve winning. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I believe in that. Obviously, schools that win at a high level have a certain culture that's very strongly instilled within their locker room, their players. There's no doubt that needed to be done. I'm not saying Willie shouldn't have done that. I'm saying Willie was slow to do that. And the fact that we're now talking about so damn much at this point in the process, instead of, you know, maybe midway into last season when things were falling completely off the tracks, kind of, it just, it, it irritates me. It feels like the article, well, it is a good PR move and it was somewhat well-timed. It also feels sort of late. And not only does it feel a little late, because people said, why weren't you right? Why wasn't this written a year ago? Um, Willie was putting out a different narrative then, and, and he had a different idea of where the program was. And I, we've talked about it before. He miscalculated. He was as surprised as anyone after the Virginia Tech game, I think, and, and seeing how far this team still had to go. I do agree with your point, Chris, that, that if the article, I think it does a disservice to the overall, to the overall message. It does a disservice in the sense that if you're not focusing on some of the negatives and that's what the fourth point is going to be here. And I get to you, Josh, in a second. Uh, if you're not going to talk about the disorganization on the field, some of the disorganization with with the recruiting efforts that we saw last year, the fact that this is was the worst recruiting class in about a decade and change for FSU that they're coming off of. If you're not going to spend more time on those things and other than like a quick blurb, I think that does a disservice to the overall message because we talked about this. It can be both. Willie Taggart could have inherited an awful situation. In hindsight, he did. And at the same time, he could have done much more to help himself uh, in several stages. Uh, that gets me to point four here. And that's, let's see. All right, you ready, Josh? Uh, this is a good idea for me to set up a segment where I'm having to read stuff, by the way. All right, after months of locker room issues last season, and even Taggart admits dysfunction among the coaching staff, rock bottom arrived in the season finale against rival Florida. 
uh, the fact that there is, and that's about the only thing that I can recall from the article that points to, I think, something that would Taggart admitting a, a flaw that, that he was responsible for directly, a dysfunction among the coaching staff. I thought that was interesting that it was, one, it should have been more than just glim, you know, just skimmed over, but two, Brandon, Josh, your Bryce thoughts. Can. Yeah, go for it's it. One sentence on Taggart admits dysfunction among the coaching staff. We We get... Six words, not even one sentence. We get six words on that, and then it's glossed over and moved on. Spinoff article soon come on Knowles 247. That, that, was, that. that was the most interesting part of the entire article, I thought, as far as advancing anything that we hadn't known yet, right? To me, that was the yeah. part that, that just like, oh, that's that's interesting. That's I mean, different. This is, yeah, this was not a big secret. I wrote an article, um, a coaching insider. My first coaching insider of the season came the three days before the Gator game. And in that article, I said that um, I expected Alonzo Hampton to be dismissed. I said that there was some, I don't know what words I used, but like a headbutting between Willie Taggart and Harlan Barnett on some scheme issues throughout the year. And I also said that it was a possibility that we see David Kelly moved off the field. Um, in, you know, that was before the season had ended. I, I wrote that that's what I was hearing from the inside. Um, Alonzo Hampton was dismissed for some reason. It took until January 2nd to fire him despite not playing in a bowl game or anything. Um, we, we now know that there was locker room dysfunction and I'm sure Harwin Barnett's defense getting smoked week in week out probably caused for some, um, some conversations. Uh, David Kelly was was tried to move off the field. You know, if all things would have gone right for FSU and he he picks up the waiver, then we're then David Kelly's off the field. Um, these things were seeping out of the moor. Uh, when there's dysfunction, you know, everybody sees it. Everybody knows it. It gets held in for a while throughout the season. But when the writing's on the wall that we're about to lose to both of our rivals and not make a bowl game, people start talking. And you know, these were just some of the things that were seeping out. During this season, and yeah, then, that doesn't even include the the Walt Bell, right? With not yeah. along, it was with he had Chris and I both heard from someone who knows Walt Bell well, and that we trust like wholeheartedly that Walt Bell wasn't happy with his role as a play caller, and you see that he was looking for opportunities to get out, and then Greg yeah, Fry gets let go and, too. And a majority yeah. of that's the fact that you know Walt was calling somebody else's offense. He wasn't using his verb. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of confusion, and it didn't have to just do with personalities not getting along it was more of a uh, x's and o's um disagreement with a lot of it bell bell expressed to somebody i know very well after the notre dame game in person to their face just how miserable he was um you know and some of that is losing losing causes coaches to be miserable especially a coordinator whose offense looks like garbage you know he's gonna be unhappy in that game the offense looks like garbage um, everybody remembers the second play of that game. And if you don't go have a drink. Um, so there's that, but I mean, there's other things, Greg Fry, everybody knew his ass was getting fired or getting reappropriated in some Reassigned, form or fashion yeah. for like 70 days. And the dude's just sitting there wallowing, not sure what the hell is going on. That's I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't get, know if Greg Fry knew knew hundred percent where he was going. Unfortunately, well, every, I think everybody knows where they're going. But you, you, you know, if you're getting fired or if you're getting something's happening at your job, everybody knows it. But it's not a, official until until the boss you know levies it until it gets handed down. Fry knew he was getting fired, but what's he supposed to do during the month of January? Not get in his car and go on the road and recruit? Is he supposed to not attend recruiting meetings? Is he supposed to? You know, it's just it creates a very odd dynamic, like Chris is alluding to. And I, I get they did somewhat save money on Clemens because they were playing a game with Chicken with Houston. They won that game at the end from a financial standpoint. So I understand that, but it's still just a, it's a weird deal how everything seems complicated. And that's not solely and let, just let on me tell you, as someone who covers the program, every day seeming complicated and. Eh, gets a little old after a while. I agree. It's, uh, well, in the context of when we're talking about dysfunction with the coaching staff and, and some of the way things are managed, whether it's within the football building or just the athletic program in general, yeah, it does get a little taxing. And, and I do think it's worth noting here as it applies to this article, 
think about it this way, guys. Like the whole article is about the the mess that Jimbo left, and we all agree. Jimbo Fisher left a mess. That's hard to argue at this point. Very few people argue it. The ones who do, I think, are ignoring the big picture. But that being said, what we just discussed the past five minutes, the dysfunction among the coaching staff, like that, other than losing, like Josh said, making things worse, um, that's on that's on Willie Taggart, right? I mean, he's the one responsible for putting that staff together. He made those decisions. He talked very much so in depth before he assembled the entire staff about the importance of having camaraderie and chemistry and getting the right coaches, not just the best, most talented coaches, but guys who fit the pieces of the puzzle that he had a vision for the program. Those are misses. Um, I do think now the the staff that he has in place looks more like the one he initially wanted and he missed on some guys. But, but again, I don't like the idea that, that we're just skimming over and it seems like absolving Willie Taggart of a certain chunk of blame for last season. When, when that's something that he had control over much more than he did the actual roster and the APR he took over. This is the offensive staff you want. We'll see if that rings true for the defensive side of ball too, specifically right. coordinator on that side of ball. Uh, I think that's a good transition point. If we're okay, moving off this, are we all good? You guys get your, your points off. Josh, you good? I got all my points off. Got them off. All right. Yeah, got them all. Got them all off. All right. Transition. Josh, you reported, well, you put a, you put a message board po- post up and it's VIP. And if you guys uh, are you know, paying members of Knowles 24 seven, you would have seen this yesterday. Josh, you caught up with Jim Levitt, former defensive coordinator under Willie Taggart, Oregon. Do you want to fill us in real quick where that is? Cause I know it's something Boy, people have been asking about catching up with Jim Levitt. Let me tell you. So yesterday morning, um, try to call him Sunday, called him yesterday morning. I called Levitt at 6 30 AM. I thought if there's anybody that is up early, it's Levitt, right? He ended up calling me back um, a couple hours later and he apologized. He's like, Oh, you called, you called pretty early. And you know, I was getting ready to go for my run. And I was, I was like, coach, you, I, I just assumed you're, you're up at like 4am. And he's like, Oh no, I'm and So anyway, he's down here in St. Pete. Um, he is visiting with his family again. He's back off the road. Um, he told me he's definitely going to get into coaching again. He knows for a fact he'll be on the field at some point, but probably not this year. So I asked him, I said, you know, I saw you up at Florida state. I know that, um, you have interest in, in, in relinking up with, uh, in linking back up with Willie Taggart. What are you going to do? And he's just like him and hall and, and telling me that, he he's enjoying spending time. He really doesn't know, but he's still talking to UF, FSU, and LSU. He said. Then he threw in the Denver Broncos as well. I guess he spent two weeks with the Denver Broncos in the spring, and he has a connection there from his time with the 49ers. But I think he's going to end up in college. Um, I know he has a great connection with uh, Aranda and Coach O at LSU. But with his family here in St. Petersburg, I tend to believe he's going to end up staying in state. Um, as far as the decision time goes, he acknowledged to me that he understands that everybody's on vacation right now for the next two weeks. So there's really no pressure for him to make a decision. And he kind of said um, he's also waiting for that right call for, for, for the program that really needs him and where he can where he can come and make an impact is is an analyst for a year. So we'll see about Florida state. Um, he told me he'll keep me updated. Uh, but I, I, I think, I think the FSU has a good shot at, at getting him on board in an off field role for a season. And, and I know that FSU is certainly interested in that, uh, especially what we've seen this spring is that they have, I don't even say toyed with at this point, And they're telling recruits and Chris can speak on this, but they're talking about implementing a new scheme or at least new variations of their scheme under Harlan Barnett. And that includes more of like a hybrid 3-4 look. Guys, you know who who runs a, a hybrid 3-4 defense? UCF. Mm-hmm. Jim Levitt does, but uh, UCF used to. Anyways, so Jim Levitt does. I thought it, you were it, just trying to shoehorn a UCF reference. No, that was only, that's only on Trey's show. That's only on the Rollcast that I try to shoehorn UCF references and occasionally on, on the bench. Um, yeah, I, uh, I think there is something – to be said for the fact that they're implementing a defense that has some elements of what Jim Levitt has familiarity with. 
nothing set in stone at all. Like Josh said, he talked to him directly, and then there's still yeah, things that are really open. Put, do you really think that like they're changing a defense? Knowing that Jim Levitt, my, I, I, I no, time no, I don't think, no, I don't think, no, well, I don't think. I think it's more a matter of in the eye of Willie Taggart what he wants defensively, more so than the individuals that we're talking about. Right, and and getting someone who has familiarity with that scheme on board to help oversee it would make sense. Now, I'm not saying they're doing it because Jim Levitt's already in the fold. That's not accurate. Uh, what I'm saying is that if you're FSU and you're running the scheme that, or you're wanting to to kind of have the scheme that fits your personnel that you have going for a guy who has experience running it makes sense uh, and having him internally to help out with that implementation when when the coordinator you have right now doesn't have a whole lot of experience with it makes sense that's all i'm saying i'm saying i think there are dots to connect that that why florida state would have interest but we already know florida state's interested so uh, we don't have to to belabor that any longer um okay next point deandre francois guys chris i'm gonna kick this to you because i know you want to talk about deandre francois there are rumors uh, a couple different outlets have reported that he was at Alabama State this past week, talking to him about possibly going there right now. Uh, the thought is that he was going to go to FAU as a walk-on. Uh, apparently, Alabama State's in play. The reason why we're mentioning that is because Alabama State plays Florida State this season. So DeAndre Francois could end up being in Doak anyways. On a scale of 1 to 10, Chris, how much do you care? <laughs> Zero. I mean, <laughs> yay. Good for him. Whatever. You wouldn't be interested at all in seeing DeAndre Francois go against Florida State. That wouldn't that wouldn't have any kind of intrigue to you. You wouldn't be there. Wouldn't be one part of you that would want to see him get no, sacked. Like no, Florida State should destroy Alabama State just regardless of who's lining up opposite of them. And I'm not going to wish ill on a kid as far as physical, you know, getting no. beat up in the back of that. I don't I mean, care. I don't want him to get hurt. I, don't misconstrue. I didn't say I wanted to get hurt. Just, you wouldn't. That's what? what I heard in your voice. If you I'm if he got if he got oh God. Well, I bet your arms are folded right now. <laughs> all right. Uh, last part before we take, go to the break. All of Tribe Nineteen is in. Uh, I was going to ask you guys a question on that, but I really don't care about your thoughts right now. We'll be right back after this break. Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at NewBalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, we're back. And now time to get to recruiting. Joshua, FSU sits at number 17 nationally right now in this class. June, you just wrote an article about June. You felt like this was a squandered opportunity uh, to some extent. Is that fair to say? Or are we still in wait and see mode on Center Live? I'm giving you your chance to plug your article that you just wrote, which shocking. It's polarizing. Yeah, I think a little bit of both. You know, after observing the Florida State recruiting strategy for June, I think it produced some results. Yes, we we got prospects like Jalen Knighton and, and Kayvon Lee, Michael Redding, and others on campus. Um, but I feel like they left a lot to be desired. Um, the results were mixed. They didn't use any official visits to bring in kids. And I so- thought that they severely severely lacked um, recruitable 2020 prospects on offensive or defensive line, whether it be through unofficial visits or through their camps. For whatever reason, I, I you know they're going to gear up for a big event in July, and they're going to do Saturday Night Live. But there's no rule that says you can't also have a big event in June or try to put something together in June um, recruiting wise. And, and I kind of feel like they kind of elected to punt on first down in the month of June and they held a big man camp. I mean, they held two days of big man camp 
and we didn't see a single recruitable offensive lineman work out. We saw, was it one defensive tackle come to work out? Um, Johnny Brown from CCC put, put cleats on for about Johnny 20 Newton. minutes. Johnny Newton, Johnny Brown. Johnny Brown worked out the next week, um, and he's from Middleton. Johnny Newton worked out for about 25 minutes, 20 minutes, um, and he was pretty much the only recruitable defensive tackle that we saw at their big man camp. Meanwhile, the same day, the Gators had guys like Isaiah Walker on campus working out for them. And in the past, and not just for FSU, but just as a hard rule in recruiting, generally the kids that go to these camps and work out show that shows where their priority or, or where their interest is. And FSU relied on the good faith conversations that they had in the spring with recruits that were, that they told them, Hey, we're coming up. Yeah, we're going to be there coach. And we, while we saw some talent, it was primarily at skill positions um, or positions where FSU is currently doing well at like linebacker, defensive back, wide receiver, and specifically not edge rushers or offensive tackles. Chris. I, was, I, t- I texted Chris for him to uh, to take it after you were done talking. But well, I, well, I, wanted, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to well, cut I you off. Post. I thought you may be thinking yeah, yeah, about no, no, no. Take. I just want to air to Chris here. And that is, do you believe that June – the, the plan to take June lightly is an effective strategy for Florida State because we've seen it two years in a row now. Patience is a hard thing. Um, I think it's hard for anybody. I think it's especially hard for people that cover recruiting because we understand how fast recruiting can happen and how fast it can kind of escape you. I think this is FSU's theory, and I don't think they're concerned over how their June went is one side of the coin. Do I think it's the best strategy? No, I, I'm more of the opinion, get them on campus as much as humanly possible. But there's a lot of little bits and pieces to it. It's not as simple as it's good or it's bad. I mean, you look at running back, the board's narrowed, but they're still there on night and they're still there on toe Philly. They've gotten in there real good with Lee. There's some others that are still in the mix. You look at receiver, they got a Redding on campus, got a Robinson on campus. They did not get Arian Smith, which is somewhat disappointing. But in general, that board well narrowed, they still got some of their main guys. Now on defense, they're in a pretty good spot at linebacker in the secondary. So it's more about the guys in the trenches that remain. That's where my concern comes up. Specifically offensive tackle, there's just not a whole hell of a lot of good ones available in a given year. You know, I usually work with kind of the given number of anywhere from 60 to 70, whether it's a boom or a bust year as far as how many really good offensive tackles exist in the country. So, if, you know, say 40 of those 60 to 70 are off the board on July 1st, you're dealing with a real small margin to go find a really good one. And a lot of offensive linemen, it's very tough to pursue them nationally. They're very much a regional-based person a lot of times. You know, there's the Rod Johnson's world who will come from somewhere way away. But for FSU, it's going to be Florida, Georgia, Alabama, and states that are in those vicinities that are going to produce their most possible target. And I just, you know, we're watching that board kind of slim down in those states, and there's just not a whole lot of good ones left. You know, I, I got a little excited when we thought the Andre Carrick kid was coming over in uh, June, and I know we're now expecting him in the season for an official, but, you know, there's a lot of states between Texas and Florida. just gets kind of concerning with guys like that. So to stop talking so damn much about this. My main point is I think at most positions, Evansy is actually doing a really good job recruiting. I have major, major concerns about offensive tackle and edge rushers outside of Morgan Joseph. Um, I mean, I have other guys like Chris Jones, but to me, Chris Jones is such a developmental guy. He's the third guy in your class at a position. He's not your first or second guy. They need to find a elite player at offensive tackle and as an edge rusher. Offensive tackle, they're trying to fix that on the roster, defensive and edge rusher. They're trying to, you know, not allow that to become a predicament like during that offensive tackle. And for me, that's the storyline entering July where they need to nail it. They had a big man camp. They didn't use it for 2020. They never intended to use it for 2020 from what they told me before the camp happened. So now all the weight falls on July 27th with Saturday Night Live. Do you think the camp was used? Do you think the camp was used? 
Not a ton, but I mean, how many guys were there we saw that we would even think that FSU is going to invite back? Maybe one or two. I mean, the offensive lineman from Jasper, I liked. Uh, You know, there were a few other developmental kids. The kid from Trinity Catholic has some build, not Caleb Johnson, but his teammate. He has somewhat of a build that you can kind of keep an eye on. There's some others that are of that sort, but I don't want to turn into something that was. There wasn't a whole lot of D1 talent there without doubt. So, yeah, I mean, it's somewhat wasted. They're five and seven, and coaches can't really bring kids up anymore because they can't get paid to do so. I think that's put a little bit of a hamper on camp. But it is disappointing in the same token. If Isaiah Walker doesn't come to FSU on July 27th, and the fact that he went to Miami multiple times in June, he went to South Carolina, he went to Florida, but he never made by FSU, then that's a failure because that's the guy who can help you in your state at a major, major position of need. So that's kind of, I think you got to take it on a case by case basis of the prospect, but I don't want to act like FSU didn't get anybody in on in June because they did get a healthy amount of skill guys, especially at receiver at running back. They had some success. It's more the offensive line and defensive ends where I think there's some major concerns. And, you know, I, I just, you know, I love a guy like Philip Webb, but I don't believe he's a real target for FSU. I think a guy like Morvin Joseph is probably the best player on their board currently. And while I think he's underrated as a three-star, he's viewed as a three-star. So I feel like the options are becoming more limited of guys that can really help you in the immediacy. Yeah, and that's a little bit of my point is Florida State's going to have Saturday Night Live in July, and it's going to be a big event. It's going to be successful, but how successful the, the, the board is significantly trimmer. I mean, in the month of June, Gerald Mincy committed to Florida, Joshua Jones, an offensive tackle committed to Kentucky, Kobe Baines committed to Louisville, Tate Johnson committed to Auburn, JV and Cohen committed to Auburn, Josh Braun committed to Georgia and Jalen rivers committed to Miami. These are all prospects that FSU offered early on. They spent time recruiting during the spring of Al period, went by their school twice have had numerous contacts over the phone, spent you know countless um, meetings talking about these guys, and they're all off the board heading into July. Um, it's a significantly slimmer board, so now it's kind of like we're back in the same situation we were last year. Everybody's saying, oh, it's okay. If we have a good season, we'll flip these guys. And I just don't think flipping guys at the end is an ideal situation for the staff to be put into again. Yeah, and the whole good season is that's wishing in one hand. You know, you can do that and you can do something else and see which one fills up first. It's it's just a matter of you don't want to put all your ducks in that basket. FSU, recruiting is constantly speeding up, and I don't know that FSU is speeding up at the same pace. I think that's a, the main concern I have outside of the fact that DN and offensive tackle are major, major needs where currently they don't have a whole lot of returns. Okay, so, so this – it doesn't feel like all doom and gloom. And I thought Josh's article was good. I thought it was fair. I thought it was informative guys. Check it out. Go on the message board and argue about it too, because that's what message boards are for. FSU did get some traction to end the final week before the dead period. And that's what we want to talk about It's the final week of June. There was a fair amount of, of visitors that came in and I thought there were some developments that, that I would deem significant. And I want to talk to you two guys, the recruiting guys about this. Uh, we'll go down the list here, try to do it in as chronological order as possible. Chris, I'll start off with you because I think you got him. So Braden Swinson, the three-star defensive end from uh, from Douglasville, Georgia. Uh, they got him on campus. Yeah. Go for that, please. I've been talking to him since Kelly offered him during the spring eval period. This was his second visit in about a three-week period. This visit was very much about bringing mom along. She did not come from previous visit. She really liked it. He likes FSU a lot. They've done a good job with him. I think they're certainly top two or three with him. But I think he wants to see the top school for him. He took an official there this past weekend, right before the dead period began. And they've been the school that's kind of been the constant for him throughout his recruitment. He's mentioned a lot of others, especially ACC schools, for whatever reason. Pitt's been in there, some others of that sort. But UNC's kind of been the constant. I think I just he's done a good job of kind of playing catch up and getting right behind Tar Heels. All right. Then Stephen Dix Jr., he is a, well, I guess he's a four star linebacker now from Orlando. And, uh, and part of FSU's 2020 recruiting class. There was some concern among the fan base when Miami offered, and, and there was a report out there that Miami was going to be a player for him. FSU gets him back on campus. He visited this past week with a, with a slew of teammates from Dr. Phillips and essentially said he's, I think, 100, 
was it a hundred thousand percent committed? Yeah, that's a really high percentage. That's probably Florida's highest commitment in uh, percentage highest commitment in, in a couple of years, a hundred thousand percent. Why not a million percent? I didn't count the zeros. Was it a million? <laughs> I think I think it was a hundred thousand. No, I'm just saying. Why why not add a few more zeros well, on there? <laughs> uh, that was I thought good to get though for Florida State again. You're talking about trying to get momentum. You get an in-state rival goes ahead and offers. There's chatter out there that he's going to be into Miami. He goes ahead and and says, "No, like I'm I'm FSU." So that's good news, right? We can just check a that. Win's check a win. that box. Yep, we'll take it. All right, uh, another guy. <laughs> Who Chris had mentioned top two or three uh, for FSU for Braden Swinson. Another guy who said actually legitimately for sure FSU's in his top two or three. That's office alignment Michael Rankins. He's from Josh's neck of the woods. Real quick, I'll kick it to Josh. He said that Auburn, Minnesota, and Georgia Tech are in there with FSU, but he was up there this past week. Josh, what do you know about Rankins? He's, he seems like a nice, big, long tackle, and FSU needs those guys. Yes. Uh, he told you that there's four teams involved, and FSU's in his top two or three, so a win's a win, I guess. Um, Rankins, I think, is is kind of just scratching the surface on his recruitment because he was injured during the spring. Um, he didn't participate due to it, uh, something with going on with his knee. So a lot of coaches didn't really get to see him. Um, the visits he just took to Georgia Tech, Auburn, and Florida State are really the first three visits he's taken this summer. So I, I, I've also kind of spoken to his coach behind the scenes a little, and he's alluded to that as well as like, Hey, you know, these are the teams that he's interested in right now. Um, We'll see if anybody else comes in. I just don't get the feel that Rankins is in a rush to make a decision. That being said, FSU gets him on campus for Saturday Night Live in July. Maybe they can maybe they can convince him that the time is now to jump on board and commit or at least um, position themselves for a commitment prior to the season starting. But un- until Rankins really decides when he's going to take his official visits, we don't know uh, his decision timeline. But I do feel like FSU's kind of positioned themselves well, and Randy Clements has shown a good bit of interest in Rankins. And, Rankins, uh, just to add this real quick on Rankins, he strikes me as the kind of kid that whenever the early signing period happens and you know, 25 top 30 players come off the board, they get really elevated and get a bunch of crazy offers that they may not be deserving of. That's not to undermine the kid. I'm just saying that happens in the late period because schools are so desperate. Rankins kind of strikes me as that kid, partly because he missed spring, which has kept him a little under wraps, partly because the school he goes to isn't exactly a hotbed for producing talent. You know, so I kind of, he's an interesting one to me. He's one of those kids I hope he comes to uh, Saturday Night Live and we're able to see him work out just because I kind of want to see him in that setting. And two more things on Rankins to Chris's point upside. I think he said he's put on about 20 pounds this off season. He looked like it looked like it was good weight as far as I could tell, but that's someone who's still just kind of scratching the surface of, of probably what he could be as a player. And then two, he, he did tell us that, that he wanted to, uh, to come back to Florida state as soon as possible. As soon as the dead period's over Saturday Night live seems like a, a good time for him to come back to campus. So uh, let's move on. Big, 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 big target for Florida state. Thomas Schrader from down in Venice. This is an FSU and Louisville battle. He came away. I think some people thought maybe he was going to commit during the visit. Uh, he basically just had mom with him. Dad was out of town, said it killed his dad to not be there. Would have really loved to have him there. And I think FSU would have loved to have him there too, because he left the visit saying, you know, I want to talk to my parents, but basically he's close guys to a commitment with the next couple of weeks. Again, FSU Louisville battle, Josh, I'll throw this to you. Thoughts on where FSU stands for Schrader, kind of given the context of, of that interview. This is a, uh, a good example of kind of the, the struggles FSU is having on the recruiting trail right now. I do think they land Thomas Schrader, but they've got him on campus three different times this year. No other in-state teams are, are actively recruiting him. I was told um, that FSU has, has offered his twin brother a preferred walk-on spot to kind of sweeten the deal. And they are in a dogfight right now with Louisville over the 595th best player in the country. And it just goes to show you that it's, it's tough to close before the season begins and FSU can go put wins on the, on the table. Um, I've, you know, been talking to some sources close to Florida state and they, there's a feeling that, you know, maybe he could pull the trigger here in the next couple of days. I think ideally, the staff would love for a 
true offensive tackle to be committed when they hit Saturday night live. Cause because he's going to be at Saturday Night Live, but so are 30 to 40 other guys that the FSU staff wants. Are they going to have to host Thomas Schrader on his fourth visit, spend time with him, you know, try to sit down with him to commit when they could be doing this with other guys? So ideally, let's get Thomas Schrader on board in the next couple of days and move through the dead period with at least two offensive linemen on, on the commit list and possibly a third with Richie Leonard, who's going to be making his decision on July 5th. A couple of things to add on Schrader. He's already used his official to Louisville. He did that at the end of May. And Josh's point is basically what FSU wanted with, uh, when they got Weidman's commitment at receiver. It was a position where they needed a domino to fall because they had invested so much time and work. They need that with Schrader at offensive tackle. All right, so one other big development. Guys, are you going to say that I did a great job on the bench on Friday? No? I'm not going to get any credit for it? For asking the questions that got some answers? When you invest the equivalent of a 1,000 days of your life on the bench, I'll start giving you some credit. See, I'm all about efficiency. I roll there at 4 o'clock, get three interviews out by 5.30. I don't sit around all day and just waste my life on the bench. what What are you doing? I'm just saying my efficiency level on the bench is incredible. It's just, you know, I don't think it's that tough. That's all I'm saying. All right. You're always mean to me on this. So I'm going to kind of say I'm disappointed you're not more allergic to loss. <laughs> that was the first time I was stung and you know how anxious I am. Right. So I was just staring at my finger for the entirety of the Thomas Schrader interview being like, Oh God, what's happening? Like, is it going to keep getting bigger? I didn't know if I was going to be able to like, keep breathing or like, is it supposed to be hurting all the way up in my elbow? I think it, it I think it, it hurts until you pee on, once you pee on it, it stops hurting. I did. I, I did that's, pee a, on it. That's, that's a jellyfish, isn't it? I don't know. Same thing. He, he just, just wants me to pee on myself. And we derailed back on track. Brian Robinson, a, uh, this is a top 100 recruit, four star wide receiver, uh, from down in uh, West Palm beach area. Uh, all three of us now have well he was he was in on friday as well he was the last guy to leave the entire staff went out and said goodbye to him lots of hugs lots of love he is ron dugan's boy he was someone who committed to miami when ron dugan's was there and now lists fsu as his leader at this time fsu's in a good spot for him uh we all now have three all three of us have crystal balls in for him correct yep yeah yeah, the balls dropped last week. I was the first to do so. Glad to see you not, guys ride my wave. Not accurate. <laughs> Pull it up right now, you son of a gun. Who was first? Who do you think was first? You were? Yeah, boy. As soon as he decommitted for Miami, I went in, and I'm reckless with those crystal balls. Shit, I didn't know that. All right, well, here's the deal. <laughs> I am predicting – I'm very confident in predicting Brian Robinson to Florida State under the assumption, because I'm being told he's not making his decision for a while. Um, that was why I got a, a real good source close to him. That was why uh, w- when I put my crystal ball in on Wednesday, everybody asked me, Josh, is he on commit watch this weekend? I said, no, he's not going to commit this weekend, but I feel very confident in my pick. Um, my idea is he's going to make this decision down the road. By then, Alabama will no longer be in his recruitment. I can't fundamentally say right now that Florida state is going to beat Alabama on a recruit that they want in November or December. Um, but I'm just predicting that Alabama is no longer going to be, be after him by the time that it comes around. I don't think Miami is a player. I know, you know, people, um, consider the Canes as, as one of the teams in his recruitment, but I, I just don't think that that's going to happen. He did take an official visit to Pitt two weeks ago. There was some talk, when it happened that Pitt was a real player uh, because he decommitted the day that he went on the visit. But look, I, I don't think Pitt's going to be a factor in this moving forward. Chris, what's your thoughts? Chris is probably. Yeah, with reg- okay. There you go. With regards to Alabama, they got like 15, 20 that they're evaluating. They're in no rush at that position. Arian Smith, Brian Robinson, a couple of FSC targets that are on that list, but they need a couple they're the kind of school that can recruit little D, little D lead at that position currently because of recent results and guys in the league that they've produced in recent years. So they're in no rush. So Brian Robinson, unless he truly waits it out and that board becomes diminished, I don't think he elevates himself to Bama status as far as what they're truly pursuing hot and heavy at the end of this process. 
And why, uh, well, other than because I know your favorite answer when someone asks you why you put in a crystal ball for someone, it's because I think he's going there. What gave you confidence to go ahead and put it in now? Is it because I put mine with in? Robinson? Yeah. No, Robinson's because of the relationship with Dugan. He keeps showing up. They're not showing up to Paradise Camp, kind of put me over the top. Um, I wasn't too concerned with Miami, but proximity always plays a part. Um, but ultimately, relationships, when in recruiting, kid keeps showing up. He loves Dugans. I think he believes in what he can be in the offense with what Dugans and Coach Browse have told him, Ron Dugans and Kendall Browse have told him with regards to how he fits in. So I think he's bought into that. I, uh, I think if he shows up Saturday Night Live, it will get real interesting if he's willing to be patient and wait it out or if it's time to go ahead and get this thing done again. And FSU, I guess the the point we'll leave with with Robinson is FSU is currently seems to be in the driver's seat for him there in pole position. It's good good spot to be in for Florida State as you uh, exit the or enter the dead period. Now let's go to uh, to uh, three star defensive end Gervin. I, I mean Morvin Joseph, Chris. You spoke to him. Uh, he's someone who I think is a little bit underrated uh, based on his film. Yeah. Like his game a lot, but what were your thoughts on on when you got to catch up with him about about his visit to Florida State on Friday? He, uh, I spoke to somebody that knows Morvin and the people that brought him up, and they told me that essentially FSU, that he's a kid that tends to like his last visit the most type, but that FSU had done themselves a whole heck of a lot of good with this visit. This was actually his second visit to FSU, but it sounds like this one kind of made more of a move with him than the previous one, which I believe was for the spring game. Um, he's a guy that if FSU is going to continue to shift their defensive scheme to more of a 3-4 front, he certainly fits that and fits at a pretty high level. Obviously, it's a position of need where they need to continue to stockpile good, talented edge rushers, talented big bodies. I think they express that to him very well. They talked to him a lot about changing defense and how he would fit into it. From what I've been told, he really likes Odell um, quite a bit. You know, Odell in that area tends to do pretty well for himself outside of Lakeland High School. So the visit went a long way. I know Tennessee is definitely in it at a high level, obviously Florida is very much in it with him having been committed there for since February 15th, I believe it is. So those are a couple. He's visited a lot of schools lately, Alabama, uh, USF. I know Florida FSU were both part of those. I believe he went to Miami. I think there were two or three others. So he's kind of gotten out and see a lot, but he wants to come back for an FSU official. He wants to do that pretty late in the process. I think if, if I had to pick a flip candidate for FSU currently in this class, he would be the guy I would kind of lean towards. I'm not saying I think it definitely happens, but I think he's the guy that it's most likely to happen with. All right. Uh, there were two more guys well, that we caught up. Oh, go I'm ahead, Jeff. Gonna, Sorry. I'm not going to say too much more on, on Joseph, but I spoke to a source. You know, he's, Chris just talked about speaking to somebody close to Joseph, and I spoke to somebody um, close to the, the staff at Florida State, and there was a lot of optimism coming out of there. Um, I think I agree with what Chris said. I think um, of all the crystal balls that I put in last week, I was also very close to putting one in on Morvin Joseph um, to flipping to Florida State. So that's something to watch. And definitely if he's on campus again for Saturday Night Live, um, I think it only heightens the the chances of him flipping. Flip pick. All right. Billy Bowman, 2021 athlete from Texas. Chris, you caught up with him, correct? Yes. Yeah, I talked to him real briefly. He's a really talented kid. He could play receiver. He could play DB, either one at the college level. He's played both in high school at a very high all-state level. He's the son of a coach. Very talented kid. He's kind of making rounds. He went to Bama. He went to Florida. He went to FSU. He went to a few others here in recent weeks. He's gotten caught fire on the recruiting trail. He's up to about two dozen offers. Um, he's good. FSU likes him a lot. They were by during the spring evaluation period offered when they were at the school. He's one of those that I think if Kendall Browse is here for a couple of years, you see FSU pursue him as a slot receiver type in Kendall Browse offense. But, you know, he's got a ton of good options. He's in no rush. He's going to try to narrow it down, I think, before his junior season. So probably in a couple more months. FSU made a good impression, but it's tough to tell with kid having 26 to 30 offers. And that number is going to swell further. And seeing a lot of schools at FSU is truly going to be one of those four or five you consider down the stretch. And one of the final 2021 visitors that came in before the dead period was defensive back Philip O'Brien Jr. from Deerfield Beach. Um, no stranger to the Florida State program, O'Brien is cousins with Henry and Zach Crockett, who both played for the Knowles in the 90s. So 
Um, heading up, I thought O'Brien had a chance to commit while he was on campus. Um, he did not pull the trigger, but the six foot one defensive back, uh, definitely likes FSU, um, understands the family connection and even, you know, had a comment about saying that he's up next, meaning, you know, the next to carry the torch, presumably in the Florida state franchise in his family, but we'll see on that. I mean, he's a 2021 kid, so I'm not concerned that he didn't commit, uh, we all have crystal balls in on Philip O'Brien to Florida State, so I think it's just a matter of time. Zach Blostein, Knowles 247 intern, caught up with him, and he told Zach that uh, he'll be back for Saturday Night Live on July 27th, so maybe we get a commitment out of him then. But either way, I feel really good about where they sit with the number 13 safety in the 2021 class. All right, last recruiting topic, and then I think we're we're done here. Uh, you had mentioned Richie Leonard commits on July fifth. Is it? What are we? What are our thoughts on where things stand right now? FSU would have liked to get him in this past month, I imagine, and to our knowledge, uh, they did not. So, where do you guys think FSU stands for him right now? I'm truthfully not sure. I uh, I need to talk to some of the other guys around the network and get a feel. Talk to Tennessee guys, Georgia Tech guys. Um, I I don't know. I know he liked FSU a lot. I know his family liked FSU a lot. I know when the offer finally came and the decommitment from Kentucky came, it felt like the momentum was very much in FSU's direction. But the lack of a visit at any point in recent weeks is concerning. He did say that a family situation did not allow him to visit two weekends ago, that he had hoped to make it in that weekend. I know at one point I was told by FSU that they expected him in that weekend. So, you know, there's that element to it, but, I, I think I have a crystal ball in for FSU. I still am leaning that way, but I need to do some more research between now and July 4 to kind of reach a final conclusion on where the heck that's going to end up. I'm not, I'm, a, I'm uneasy compared to where I was, obviously, when I put in that crystal ball. All right, Josh, what are your thoughts on Leonard right now? Um, like Chris said, as his commitment nears, I probably need to, you know, check in with some people. But over the weekend, I texted with Luke Stampini of our Gator site, Andrew Ivins of our Miami site, just to kind of get a feel. Neither of them were absolutely sure what Leonard's doing. Um, he hadn't spoken after his visit to Tennessee. This was probably on Sunday morning that I reached out to them. Um, Ivins felt like it was not Miami and that if he does stay in state, he thinks it's UF. Um, none of us really know the role that Tennessee is going to play in this. I asked Luke what his thoughts were, and you know he 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 wasn't overly confident, but thought that UF was probably the team right now if if it was signing day. I switched my crystal ball to UF. I don't like the fact that it's been since April sixth. And um, <laughs> do you think it was a coincidence that the day I logged my crystal ball in for UF, Richie Leonard came out and said that FSU? Don't worry, FSU's quote unquote not out of it yet. Josh, I don't think the world revolves around you quite as much as you think. But I mean, this is this has been a reoccurring theme. Well, this, uh, this podcast, Richie Jesus Leonard had, had need to address the FSU fan base after I put in a crystal ball to UF. About three hours later, there's a Richie Leonard tweet saying that FSU is not out of. And to me, that's a that that's may a be the, yeah, that may ahead. be the FSU fan base freaking out on Twitter though. You know, they they do have a tendency to sometimes do that. Josh oh, is saying that he's the he got oh, the domino to oh, fall. Oh, oh. Oh, trust me. I don't think Richie Leonard's watching my crystal ball picks. I think FSU fans freaking out over my crystal ball pick, adding Richie Leonard on Twitter to notify him that, you know, that, that he should still come or something like that probably prompted the response. Um, just, just like how your, your uh, bolt about uh, blame with Jimbo Fisher and Willie Taggart sparked a, a, like a seven source story by Matt Hayes that he probably started reporting like three months ago. Right. Yeah, it's called influence, Brandon. <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I you know I just don't like the fact that it's been since April 6th. And, you know, and we're going to rehash everything. But just the fact that he's been to places during the month of June and FSU was not one of them. It's a concern. Oh, fair enough. All right, guys. Anything else before we wrap up here? Baseball. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Said it so meekly. No, don't hang up because uh, I need you to be on for me to keep recording this. Chris, baseball, you were in Omaha for what felt like three months. Uh, our web numbers reflect as much. Thank you for that. Thoughts on, on Mike Martin's uh, his, his last run. It was magical. Uh, and then uh, a little bit of news there on his replacement. Go ahead. I'll give you how much time do you want to give him, Josh? Two minutes? 
Nine minutes. minutes. Nine minutes. Well, let's say two. Nine minutes. minutes? Nine. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Calm no, no. Down. I'm you giving you two. You're trying to kill the audience off? Go. Um, Omaha was fun. They obviously didn't play very good ball out there. The pitching actually was very good, but the hitting just was non-existent. Um, I found a lot of people kind of thinking, oh, Omaha again. They choked. They got tight. No, I think it was more the FSU baseball team I watched most of the season was a very up-and-down bunch. And what we saw in Athens was the best of what they are. What we saw in game one at LSU was pretty close to as clutch as they've been all year. Game two at LSU was kind of a nail-biter where they didn't play particularly well, especially offensively, but they were able to get enough late to win that game in advance. And then they got to Omaha. They faced good pitching. Tommy Henry, who won game one for Michigan last night, the Caldwell Series final, is one of the two guys they faced. The guys they faced for Arkansas and Tommy Henry, who I mentioned from Michigan, were both second-round picks. So it's not like they faced some lackluster, non-talented pitchers. They faced good guys. But that being said, they didn't put together hits. They didn't put together much offense at all. It was disappointing. One minute. Obviously, the end is never fun, so that's not a great thing. Watching 11's final hat tip to the crowd, the end of all that, you know, as someone who grew up watching FSU baseball, now has covered it for almost two decades. I enjoyed that moment. Um, I enjoyed watching. I enjoyed listening to Coach Martin one last time enjoyed watching him leave with his daughter and his wife as they left the stadium. And yet he still took time with fans kind of paints a picture of the person and man. He is, I think very highly of 11. He's always treated me with a great deal, of just, you know, straightforwardness. And I appreciate that. Enjoyed covering his career. Now, Mike Martin jr. Who's a very different person than his father in many ways is taking over the program. I think if you follow me on the site, you know, that that's been the expectation from me for several months and nothing really changed with that. I think the most important thing with Mike Martin Jr. being hired is, one, him to put his personal stamp on the program but not veer very far off course, but to ramp up recruiting, which is something he spoke a great deal about in his introductory press conference, as well as going to hire the best possible assistance he can, namely a great pitching coach. FSU's needed a great pitching coach for a long time, in my opinion. I think it's very important that they nail that hire, which – it sounds like from what Mike Martin Jr. said yesterday during his introductory press conference, he intends to make his hires as quickly as possible. I think uh, Thurnell, who's the assistant that's probably the number one name to keep an eye on as pitching coach. And then he wants to hire a MLB scout with experience. He's good in the college game for the second assistant. That's kind of his dream scenario. All right. Two minutes and 37 seconds for you. That's really awesome, dude. Good job. Good job. What was the best, uh, what was the best meal you had in Omaha? Uh, well, the Drover apparently caught fire, so it was not open, which was disappointing. A place called, I believe it was Block 16, it's a lunch spot. It was outstanding. Uh, me and Wayne McGahey from the Democrat went, and it was very, very good. Had a few good steaks out there, which is kind of tough not to come by. All in all, good what eating the, in Omaha. What, what the kind hell of, was wrong with Wayne's ribeye? Like, that thing looked disgusting. Did it look as bad in person? That yes, that was that, disgusting. That was, I mean, it was, it was, it was very rare, but... Uh, it's how he wanted. We were at Gorads, which is Warren Buffett's favorite place out there. It's kind of a older version steakhouse. Um, pretty cool little place. It's a little bit on the outskirts. It's on downtown Omaha near TD Ameritrade. That shit. That shit was still eating grass. All right, guys. This was a solid podcast. I'm gonna give us a seven out of ten. How about that? C plus effort. Josh, you, you cool with that? Yeah. Josh checked out like five minutes ago. All right. Yeah. <laughs> for those of you who have listened this long, thank you for doing so. Appreciate it. Josh and Chris, thanks for joining me. This is Brendan Snow with Knowles 24 7's On the Bench podcast. Stick in the landing.